And I think all of our listeners will be happy to know and to hear that we actually committed to this and we have new microphones now. If you're listening to this, it means that you thought that the first three episodes weren't as bad as we think they were. And now we have microphones. So your patience has paid off. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Welcome to our first full-length series here at the Six Queens podcast. This series, we're going to be focusing on location, location, location. We're going to be looking at space that our queens surrounded themselves in and that also surrounded them. Be sure to tune in each week for a different topic surrounding court, ceremonies and some ghost tales to wrap up the series. This episode, this week, we're going to be talking about the court so uh, this is kind of a tricky word. It has a lot of different meanings in terms of um, 16th century royal history. But in this case, we are going to be talking about the physical court um, where, where everything was happening for our queens, basically. And because we thought it might be easier for people to envision specific things when we're talking about this, we are going to be using Hampton Court Palace as a case study. Henry VIII had a lot of palaces that he stayed in, um, over 50 actually, but not all of them exist anymore. Hampton Court is a really, really great example of one that is still with us. So um, if you haven't been, you can Google pictures of it to get an idea of what we're looking at. And we'll also put some on our website. But if you have, uh, we thought it might be fun for you to actually envision what was going on in the spaces as we talk about all of these concepts. I'm I'm so ready I'm so ready to have this conversation. I'm so happy we're talking about this one to begin with because you know how much I love a discussion about court and about courtly politics. <laughs> um but no like Kate was saying I think it is important that we um are able to talk about the space of court because we can't talk about the people that inhabited it without talking about the space itself. The two are so interconnected and it's really the heart of where monarchy happened so no it's, it's a definitely it's a space where monarchy was performed which is probably an odd thing to say but a lot of renaissance monarchy and especially henry VIII's court there's so much pageantry involved and there was so much that had to be performed to meet that expectation of being a king that our queens naturally got themselves wrapped up in it yeah physical spaces reflect the theoretical concepts that we're going to be talking about. This idea of court as um, both a group of people and a series of beliefs or um, a, a political machine, the, the physical space, the rooms at court, the way that the court is physically built reflects all of that. So that's really what we wanted to walk you through so that later on when we're talking about those things, but in general, when we're talking about events that happened in these spaces, you can get an idea of where it was all happening and how that all ties together with where the queens physically are. Definitely. And I think what 
is also important when we're talking about the physical space of court is understanding that the space uh, each space was different as you kind of got more towards the person of the monarch and more in towards that space where you are interacting with the the body of the monarch those spaces became smaller they became more intimate that then is then reflected in the ability the political power people are able to wield um thinking you know just off the top of my head um having that access to a room that someone like Henry or one of his queens was in. When Wolsey um, finally like realised his fall from grace was coming, it's because he was barred access to a room that Henry was in. So what we need to be able to do is kind of start associating the person and the place together. I'm going to kick off our discussion by filling in a few historical details for people who might not know. We've talked about how we're going to use Hampton Court as a case study. So I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about Hampton Court and uh, the different palaces in general. As I said, Henry moved between palaces a lot. He had a lot of them. And a lot of them were uh, really big centers of power in and around London. Um, the one that he tends to be at the most, I think, is Whitehall, which uh, isn't there. It doesn't exist anymore, but it's where um, Westminster and the government buildings are in London today. The road is still called Whitehall. There was also another one, uh, Greenwich, which you can see the site of. It's where the Royal Naval College is today in Greenwich in London. Uh, there was also Richmond uh, right outside of London and Hampton Court, which is also outside of London. You're getting the gist here. They tend to be close enough to the city, but far enough away that you're not in the city proper. They all even though they were different, they all tended to be built in the same way, following the same pattern. So we're using Hampton Court as an example because we know that all of the different palaces followed the same kind of structure. So just so you can get the idea of where we are. Hampton Court itself was actually not built by Henry, though. He acquired it. It was built in between 1514 and 1515 by Cardinal Wolsey, who was the Lord Chancellor and Henry's right-hand man for a while. He built himself a really grand country residence that um, actually rivaled any place that the king stayed in. And because of this, when Wolsey started to fall from Henry's favor, he gave Hampton Court to Henry as a peace offering, knowing that <laughs> kind of coveted it because it was such a big lavish palace. So Henry took control of Hampton Court in 1528 and he started remodeling it and he finished all of his renovations by 1540. I always find it interesting that the idea that Henry acquired or it was gifted to him as though it was almost voluntary um, on, on Wolsey's part. When all the, all the man was trying to do was keep his head above water and just keep swimming. I was, it always tickles me. <laughs> and that idea that it is so heavily associated with Henry, I always find quite interesting when, as you just said, um, it was Wolsey that built it. So I, it's, while it's grand and it's magnificent and it's all those other synonyms that go along with monarchy and majesty, it's also intimate for Henry and I think, it, and his family, and it's also very personal. Even though Henry might have seen it as being more of an intimate private space, which we'll get to towards the end of the episode, it was still meant to be a very public, very blatant symbol of wealth. Um, at first, Wolsey's and then Henry's. It was physically very imposing. I mean, even if you go today or if you just see a picture of the front gate 
from the road, it just looks very imposing. Even though today you know it's a museum, you're still a little bit worried to go inside. And at this point, it is important, I think, that we emphasize that when we're talking about the person of the monarch, we, we do have to talk about Henry. Any change that came at court, anything that happened at court was because Henry had changed his mind about something. You know, maybe he'd aged or in typical Henry fashion, he was bringing in a new wife. It all centers around him. And while it is centered around him in that immediate way that everybody kind of went to court to, you know, to be seen, to be part of that performative aspect of monarchy. It was also very much, in a real sense, projecting back out into the world about what Henry wanted to tell the world and about him, about his dynasty. Anything you want to possibly know about Henry is is there. So we're going to go kind of um, location by location within the palace to talk a little bit about what the spaces were used for and what they say. And then a little later on, once we've kind of taken you on a verbal tour of Hampton Court, we're going to talk about how the queens interacted with these spaces and what the spaces tell us about the queens themselves, because I think that's always really fun looking for traces of them in the architecture. So first up, I'm going to we're going to go to the sort of crown jewel of Hampton Court, which is the Great Hall. If you have never been here before, it is a magnificent space, both as a 21st century visitor to Hampton Court, but at the time it would have, it was supposed to inspire awe in the people who went in. It's this large room used for banquets. It has a gorgeous high beam ceiling. It's just, it's a, it's a wonderful space. It absolutely is. And kind of as you were talking about it, you know, just creating that image of what it looked like in my mind. It's just so brilliant. Um, What I find interesting about that space, um, you know, as you say, it was a space that people gathered in, but to be seen, but then also to see Henry um, and his queens, which is important. But it's also a space to intimidate, I think. It's you're meant to be, you know, kind of standing there gushing over his brilliance and his wealth and everything else he's achieved, but also remembering very clearly, this is a man of means, this is a man of power, and he's not playing around. No, this is the ceremonial space of court. This is the go-to place where all of the big, very public events are happening. And when we say public, we don't necessarily mean that these spaces were available to everyone, just everyone at court um, in terms of the, the courtiers and the, you know, the entourage that were there. But this is a space where everyone could go, as you said, to get a glimpse of the king and the queen. They were on show here. This is where they put on their their masks. And this is where they were the king and the queen, like with with capital letters. You know, this is the whatever persona they had created for themselves. This is where it was on full display and they could really be seen as icons rather than actual people. I kind of want to pick back up on that idea that you just mentioned about the king and the queen wearing masks and, you know, that performative aspect. And I suppose it is one we'll return to later. But because Henry himself and his queens also performed in masks and in pageants and things like that, and he absolutely loved them. If ever I think there was a drama queen, it was Henry. He loved it. But I think within that, what we need to remember, it was a space where he was entertained by the people that were there, so, you know, musicians, poets and things like that that he also entertained. Yeah, performative in so many ways, but he himself was part of that. So even if he wasn't necessarily the one who's reciting the poetry or playing the music or dancing in the masks, um, he was he was watching them. 
and he was there to be seen. This was uh, the place at court where everything you did, even if you weren't the king or the queen, even if you were just there as a courtier, everything you do is being watched by somebody. And this is uh, really neatly exemplified in the Hampton Court Great Hall by the eavesdroppers. There are these little uh, carvings in the beams of the ceiling of people leaning down over um, the rafters of the roof, and they are listening to everything that you say. This idea that everything that happens in the Great Hall is being observed by somebody. And so everything you do as a queen, sitting up there on the dais, watching people dance, you're, you're being watched. Because I think that feeds it, that, that physical space of court and people being, being there to be seen, you know, being watched, everything all comes together and makes it an extremely volatile and dangerous place to be. Especially, you know, for thinking of people like Anne Boleyn, for example, and Catherine Parr, people who had known enemies at court and made themselves very known and very visible. Everything those queens did, every step they took, it was seen, it was talked about. And not just at the English court either. No, no, because that would make life easy. Like abroad as well. The Great Hall wasn't the only place where this was happening either. There were a lot of different places at the palaces where um, you would have to kind of watch your footing and you needed to be careful about what you were doing. But in terms of the um, the revelry and the celebration, it wasn't just in the Great Hall. It, a lot of spaces at Hampton Court attest to just how many places there were for uh, the men, especially for Henry to show off. So the one that comes to mind at Hampton Court is the fabulous uh, tennis court that they have where Henry himself would play tennis and show off uh, just how athletic he was. Because who doesn't love a kingly display of sporting prowess? It it wasn't just the tennis courts that were there either. You know, you had the tilt yards, the, the hawking, the archery. So it's a place to perform politics and, you know, invite certain people to go and watch you play I'm thinking especially about Hawking and him the, the bond that him and Cromwell then kind of shared over Hawking and things like that but it was also a place where you could be alone but also surrounded by people and I think that's one of the fabulous contradictions of the Tudor dynasty as a whole is that contradictions at court you, you know you go to be seen but you also go to be alone but you're never really alone because you've always got someone with you. Yeah, everything you do at court has some political purpose, whether it's being alone or being surrounded by five people or being surrounded by 500 people. Everything has a political purpose. Every space built into Hampton Court served a political purpose because the king and the queen inherently themselves were political beings. There was nothing that could be private about them because they were the sort of physical manifestations of the country and the government. So Everything that they did at Hampton Court was for a reason. It was being observed by somebody to explain a different thing, whether it's Henry showing how sportly and agile he was on the tennis court or, uh, you know, the queen making a show of how demure and wifely she was at dinner in the Great Hall. That, that's true. As you say, it is true of all aspects. And I think that kind of brings us neatly on to places like the watching chamber. Yeah, so the watching chamber is um, the term for the room where 
I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's where you watched out for the king. And at Hampton Court, it is the large room right off of the Great Hall, but it's a room that connected the royal apartments to the area around the uh, royal chapel, the Chapel Royale, actually. So it was literally the hallway, basically, that Henry used to get from one place to the other. So if you're standing there, if you're a courtier, you're there because you need to talk to the king about something. You want to pick his ear or you want to make a proposition, do some business. And you have, what, 30 seconds to catch his attention between the time that he walks out from the royal apartments and he crosses the room to get to the chapel. That's it's, And maybe he'll come back that way and you'll get lucky. But what springs to mind for me is if anyone has seen the mini series that they did of Wolf Hall, Hilary Mantel's book Wolf Hall, there are some great scenes. Thomas Cromwell is standing around waiting to get the king's attention. And it just is it's a waiting room. It's just a bunch of guys standing around thinking maybe at some point the king will walk through. And if he does, then they have 30 seconds to really make an impression and get his attention. That's really the purpose of the whole room. And that's the difference between, you know, as we've seen with some people being, you know, noted in a history book and, and, and not. Not that they were aware of that fact, but the significance of it was incredible. It's just sort of odd to me when you think about it from not their perspective. So I think we, when we look at the watching chamber, we tend to think of it from the perspective of the people who are doing the watching. It's interesting to think of it from the perspective of Henry or from the queens who are doing the walking through the chamber, just because from their perspective, they're going about their daily routine. They're walking from their apartment to go pray. It was just what they did every day. And yet it meant so much to the people. It just, it speaks to this, what, what we keep coming back to, this performative aspect of court is the idea that Henry and the, his queens are doing this because it's their daily routine. And yet it means so much more to all the people who are surrounding them. I think what it also does is it kind of reiterates that point that we were making, that the power and the prestige of the monarch is built into the architecture of the court. And I don't think that's a point that, you know, we can downplay, you know, they, they, they reflect each other for a reason. Nothing at court is accidental. The way it's designed, the, the paths that people take, the, the way that masks are performed are all there to signify a message. And it is all deliberate and honestly, incredibly fascinating and incredibly clever. Especially how these spaces seem to be built almost organically. Like, it's very hard for me to imagine, a, say, an architect sitting down and saying, oh, well, this room will be used for all the people standing around to wait to talk to the king. Or this room will be used for the grand ceremonial feast and everything, just because it seems to happen so naturally, as if the space is almost, the physical space is almost secondary and it's growing up around all of these people. And I think that's especially evident when you realize that looking at the floor plan of a palace, it gets more intimate the further in you go. It's almost like a maze where you hit the middle and you're you're in the, the almost secret part of the castle or the palace where you, only the king can be or only the queen can be. The further out you go, you're on the fringes. You're you're not quite in that world. And the goal is to work your way to that point in the middle. Let's weave our way into the, the middle of court, the middle of that maze. 
and talk about the private spaces because we've talked about the places that were used for ceremony and for um, the courtiers, for uh, pastimes, for politics. Let's talk a little bit about the, you know, house part of the palaces where uh, Henry and his wives actually lived. Those are the royal apartments. So they're at Hampton Court. They largely are no longer there, or at least they are off limits to the public. Many are used as offices now, but they were once the royal apartments and there was a king's side and a queen's side. So there weren't, it wasn't like a, uh, you know, a hotel room with, you know, adjoining doors. It was uh, two different spaces that were joined together by little hallways, but were seen as two very different physical spaces. For, for people that are listening, I suppose it's probably worth touching on that, that there were two very distinct spaces, but one occupying the left and one occupying the right. Because I think, again, that reflects the layout of that the Great Hall. Did you kind of just to bring it back for a second, you know, the king sat on the right, the queen sat on the left. And that idea about status and power, again, that's weaved right the way through to who sleeps where, who sleeps on what side of the palace. As we said, these were spaces that could not be accessed by everybody. So if you came to court, let's say if you were a politician uh, on the lowest rung, you were not necessarily getting access to the king's apartments. That was a very prestigious invitation. And the queen's apartments sort of followed the same rules. This was an area where the queen could be herself to more of an extent. She wasn't constantly performing, but she still had to you know, put on the airs for all of her ladies who were attending her. And it was also a place where more of the intimate interactions took place, not just the literally intimate uh, interactions, but uh, let's say the queen just wants an afternoon off and she just wants to play cards with her ladies. That's where it would be. You wouldn't necessarily have to go to the outside of court where everyone is. You were just in your own domain. This was her own little world. I think one particular example that I always think of when I think about, you know, the royal apartments and things like that, and just how quickly that little world can come tumbling down is with Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. So in 1531, yeah, 1531, Catherine of Aragon was effectively expelled from court, which left those apartments vacant. And what happened was at that time they were still married, um, legally married, um, but Anne moved in. Anne moved into those apartments that previously were occupied by the queen, effectively making her position with Henry solid. You know, she was queen in all but name because she occupied a specific set of rooms. The queen's rooms especially, I think, represent that status just because in Henry's case especially, the person occupying them was always changing, but the space itself was not. And that goes back to the um, the introductory episode we made about about this idea of the queen having to fulfill a certain set of uh, sort of regulated role. She was occupying the same space as her predecessor. The room is purpose-built for the things that you are supposed to be doing. They're all existing in the same world very physically. Their role is the same no matter who it is. So from Catherine to Anne Boleyn to Jane Seymour, the same set of expectations are put upon them. And that's exemplified simply by the fact that you're living in the same space as your predecessor. 
I think what's interesting about those expectations that like you said they were all you know they were all occupying the same space and those expectations on each of the queens were the same is what happens when it goes wrong or it breaks down because not only is it um you know damaging the relationship that a queen shared with Henry you know as a as a wife and as a queen but it's also taking place in a queenly space so one particular example of that is Catherine Howard's relationship with Thomas Culpepper. He was someone invited into that space, and then that space was used for, I'm going to call it nefarious activities, but weren't queenly activities. The same can be said of Anne Boleyn, too, with all of her favorites. All of the men who were executed with her were very obviously the people that she tended to spend a lot of time with in her own apartments, not in the innermost area of the apartments, you know, the areas where she slept or dressed or bathed, but the areas, you know, her her living room, basically, they these were the people who hung out with her a lot, and they were invited into that literally inner circle so it only made sense that then you would imply that they had gone a little bit further. So then it's interesting for me to look at the way these spaces were used in the beginning of Henry VIII's reign, in the time of um, the scandals of Anne Boleyn, say, and even to Catherine Howard, and how they very much shifted at the end of Henry's reign when he was older and he was ailing and he was physically in pain constantly because of the wound on his leg the inner circle at court just seems to get smaller and smaller with every passing year I think what you said about Catherine Howard and Thomas Culpepper is a really good example of Henry's paranoia growing this idea that even the people who are invited into that inner sanctum and who you count on as the people to see you at your most private are going to betray you within that space. You can see it constricting to the point where at the end of Henry's life, when I think he's just about to die and he's in pain, he knows that he's about to die. Even Catherine Parr, his wife, is not allowed into the king's bedchamber, his most private space, because he is paranoia and his need to just be on his own and have whatever privacy he can get is growing. I think there's something quite lovely or at least very telling about Henry's final days and who he wanted around him. And that idea of securing his dignity. And I think that was very always very important to him. You know, he didn't like to be made a show of and or be humiliated. And I think as well, like with within his final days, he was overweight, you know, his leg was, he was gout ridden with a, an oozing ulcer on his leg and things like that. And that does not correlate with the image he wanted to leave in the world. And I think that's very important than who he chose to share that with and who he chose to occupy that space. As you, as you said, you know, Catherine Parr wasn't allowed within that, which is interesting in and of itself. And she will pick back up on that on a later episode. So as you walk around Hampton Court, it's interesting to think that you start out in the the public rooms and the highlights. You know, the Great Hall is a great place to take a picture. And it's, you know, you know you've been to Hampton Court if you've taken this really nice picture of the Great Hall. But the spaces now that are unseen, whether because they've been destroyed or because they're private offices now, 
those are the places that we as tourists aren't able to go because those are the most intimate spaces of court. It's this idea of the court getting smaller and smaller, the more notable you are. And then also at the heart of it is the idea of public and private, whether or not the king and the queen, especially our queens, are ab ever able to really be private because even though the further you get in, the more you retreat into the palace, the more alone you are, you're never truly alone because the court is built for, per for performance. So while I think it's always important, if not more than anything necessary that we have to talk, we talk about Henry when we're talking about the physical space of court and places like Campton Court, because we we can't get away from the fact that he was at the centre of it. Every Everything that happened was dictated by him. It is probably at this point now that we can turn our attention to our queens and how they interacted with the space, because I think for a lot of the time, it's easy for them to get lost in it and we can't see the impact they had on the space. Um, I, I think that's a little bit sad, really, that you know, sometimes, sometimes we miss them and they're there, but because they don't have that same sort of prowess as Henry, we, we don't necessarily talk about them so much. So I know one thing that you're quite passionate about is the what you effectively call that ahas. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. This is a bit of a I spy for you whenever you're at a Tudor built palace. What I call the ha-has are the entwined initials of Henry and Anne. The most famous example of which is still at Hampton Court. It is in the wall, I think the screen of the Great Hall. And it was, um, the Great Hall was being completed at the time when Henry was very publicly declaring his love for Anne to you know, legitimize her claim to, to queenship. So their entwined initials were a, a symbol of their love, but also a symbol of their partnership. And yet they had to be removed after Anne was very publicly executed for cheating on Henry. So only one remains and it is at Hampton Court. So I'm sure if you go, whoever is there will love to point it out to you because it's a really fun thing. But um, the other haha -ha is actually seen at uh, St. James's Palace, which is still exists. You cannot go there. It is still a royal residence today. But um, in the chapel at St. James's Palace, which was uh, sort of decorated in honor of Anne of Cleves, there is another another ha ha. It's just a different a different Anne than the one at Hampton Court. I, I think that's a really nice way to start um, when we're thinking about their impact and their kind of, for want of a better word, stamp on the physical space that they occupy, because it's very simple and it's it very a physical stamp. Literally. <laughs> but I think in many ways it does that simple, simple job of court of you know who the boss is, like you know who his wife is, and you you know effectively they are the power couple that are going to be dominating your day-to-day -day life. Let's not at any point forget that. And I think it goes back to that subtle reinforcement of everything is planned, everything is 
meticulous in its detail. There's something quite intimate about it too, though. I think it does the double duty of being the reminder of who's in charge. But it's also very intimate, I think, in the way that going into somebody's house and seeing their family pictures on the wall evokes that sense of ownership, but not in a powerful, dominant kind of way. I think especially the the H and the A entwined is a symbol of love and partnership in a way that is not overtly, to me, um, power hungry. It's just sort of a, this is a space for us. This palace is where we live and this is where we have fun and we are with the people who are in our circle. I don't know. I just, to me, there, I mean, I think you're right. I think it is overtly a power symbol, but I also think that there's something intimate about those particular stamps too. Well, I think as well, when you're, you, you know, you're aware of, Henry and Anne's love story and the struggles they face to find one another and to be together. Um, I think it really speaks to that idea of it being intimate and loving. You know, as you said, it is very endearing and it is very just simple. You know, it's there, and as you say, it, it isn't overpowering. The queens also show up in more powerful ways too. Um, because yards away from the last surviving haha at Hampton Court is uh, a doorway that has Catherine of Aragon's pomegranate um, carved into it. I think we've already discussed this in the the symbols of queenship episode, but um, I don't know. I just find it funny that surviving in in eyesight of that haha is this reference to Catherine of Aragon. So. The fact that that doorway shows her symbol growing, and it's a pomegranate growing alongside a Tudor rose. So again, it's that symbol of love and partnership, but not as intimate as entwined initials, I think. For sure. And I think as well, what's also fascinating about that, within that same room, within the Great Hall, is you've got one of the last surviving falcons of Anne Boleyn and her symbol that we, we've, again, already discussed. <laughs> there's some just sort of delicious irony I suppose and just demonstrates how complicated Henry's love life was if you're paying attention but it also shows that um for however much Henry is in charge in these spaces especially in the great hall the queen's there too her her power symbols and her presence is physically represented in the space as well. So even though it's built for Henry and it reflects Henry's purpose in being king and showing off his power, part of his power is his queen and he shares that power with his queen. So it only makes sense that she is there too. Whichever one you're talking about, she is also there. Yeah, definitely. I think we have one, two, at least three that are visible down there. Uh, Just at Hampton Court, I should say. Right. Because I think the queen who is most represented at Hampton Court is Jane Seymour, because not only does she have her symbol physically in the decoration, like Catherine of Aragon and Anne, um, her her phoenix, I think, is in the ceiling of the watching chamber at Hampton Court. So she is physically represented there as well. 
but she was the person who is most associated with the Queen's apartments at Hampton Court, which still exists. They are now the offices of historic royal palaces. Uh, you can go there if you have a job interview at Hampton Court, which I did, so I've been in there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but because she lived there and because the space was redone for her, she's the one who's most associated with that space. I'll let you tell the story of Jane Seymour at Hampton Court. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was a lovely segue. <laughs> um, yeah, so as Kate was saying, um, it is a space that we do typically associate with Jane Seymour, and she is very much enshrined in the um, in the fabric of Hampton Court, I think is fair to say, because that is where um, Henry built uh, apartments for her and her confinement to give birth to Edward, and sadly, ultimately ended up dying down there as well. So her legacy and what she contributed to the Tudor dynasty is rooted at Hampton Court. The apartments at Hampton Court, of course, existed before Jane because Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn stayed in them as well, but they were redone for her because it was decided that Jane was going to spend her confinement at Hampton Court. This was a period of time right before the birth of a child, usually about two months prior, when the queen basically was ordered to stay inside because any outside stimulation would be bad for the baby. So she was basically locked up in the queen's apartments at Hampton Court Palace. Henry spared no expense. He wanted to make sure that not only she was comfortable, but the baby would be delivered safely, which had a lot to do with his wife's comfort. So the apartments were pretty new for her. And yet, like I said, he spared no expense. Ultimately, of course, we know that the story ended sadly, but I think for him, the rooms were a constant reminder of her because he not only created them for her, but that's ultimately where her story ended. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting about the confinement that you were just, that we were both just talking about um, and that idea of being shielded from kind of outside stimuli, there's still a performative act going on within that intimate space. And, you know, in the very essence that she is a public body, the, the Queen's body, as we've said in um, our previous episode on Queenship, is a public body. And, you know, she is growing an heir and delivering an heir to a kingdom. So... It, it kind of goes back to that contradiction, I think, within the Tudor court of you're, you're in private, but what is really private? And also what's going on, you know, again, that royal body being under scrutiny, again, within a private setting. Usually within the confinement period, the only people who are allowed in are other women. And this reiterates the idea that the inner spaces of court in this case, the Queen's apartments, are a very intimate place. And who is invited into that space is very much a re reflection of your reputation. So ideally, the only people within those very private spaces, i.e. the room where Jane is going to give birth, are women. It's a very feminine space, especially during confinement, because the act of childbirth is seen as a very, very feminine occasion. So, yeah, the, at, at any time, the Queen's apartments are going to be a very feminine space because the majority of the people who should be in there 
are women. Every once in a while, of course, the king, but for the most part, the queen and her attendants. Um, and this is highlighted in Jane's reputation, this idea of her being the, the perfect, obedient wife after Anne Boleyn. You never really hear about many men going into the inner sanctum of Jane's apartments. And maybe it's sort of appropriate that we talk about her apartments being the area in which she spent her confinement because that's such a feminine part of the queen's life. But also, I think when I think about court and that physical space, I, for me, it's more comfortable to think about Jane, you know, within the confinement, you know, going through her confinement and, you know, childbirth and things like that. But then when I think about someone like Anne Boleyn, you know, who was a more sort of astute political player, for me, I, I think is more com- that more comfortable image I associate with her is in, you know, the Great Hall or, you know, playing the game of politics at court. Though the game of politics, I think, could be played within the Queen's apartments because I'm thinking about Catherine Parr at the end of Henry's reign having these prayer circles, for lack of a better term, within her private apartments. She would invite in people who she knew also had reformed religious beliefs and they would discuss things in her chamber and this put her in in trouble a few times because word got out that she was doing it but to me that's the most concrete example of a queen using her own space to further her own ambition in this case it's not necessarily ambition on Catherine's part but it's something that she was deeply passionate about and she was trying to use her platform to spread the word yeah, and I think within that as well, it prompts a really lovely discussion about queen, the queens making court, uh, the kind of physical space of court their own. You know, they brought in their own people, you know, they, they used their apartments in different ways and things like that, and which then prompted maybe different relationships with different people. And it's quite interesting to see them navigate this really complex physical structure you know, act like the actual space, but then also we can see them weaving through it the best that they can. And, you know, not only surviving, but in some cases thriving as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. In the next episode, Callie and I will continue our discussion on spaces and move on to ceremonial spaces. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, and read more about the Queens on our website. There you'll also find a full transcript of this episode, plus the resources we use to prepare for our conversation. Long live the Queens!